Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. Phyllis Wheatley was the first English-speaking person of African descent to publish a book in America, and only the second woman of any race or background to do so. Written in Boston while she was just a teenager and still a slave, Wheatley's book of poems was an international sensation. And yet, her legacy is somewhat complicated. Some consider her the spiritual foremother of African-American writing, while others label her a race traitor. Today I'm going to be speaking with Vincent Coretta about his biography, entitled Phyllis Wheatley, Biography of a Genius in Bondage. Hi, Vin. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I'd like to kick things off just by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Oline. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, well, my name is Vin Coretta. I'm a professor in the English department at the University of Maryland. And for the last oh, 15, 16 years, I've been working mainly on authors of African descent who wrote or whose voices were written down by others before 1800. So what drew you to the story of Phyllis Wheatley? Uh, It was somewhat accidental. Uh, I had done editions for Penguin of several authors of African descent, Ola Uda Equiano, Adabakuruano, and Ignatius Sancho. And Penguin asked me if I would do an edition of the writings of Phyllis Wheatley, which I did in 2001. And first I said, uh, no, because I didn't think I had anything new to say. Then I realized that uh, her well, increasingly well-known letter of October 18, 1773, marked a turning point in her life. And I, so I got back to Penguin and said, okay, I changed my mind. I think I do have something to say in an introduction to a, an edition of her works. And that came out in 2001. I've worked on a number of pretty major projects since then, but I always kept my eye on Phyllis and uh, decided a couple of years ago to attempt to write a biography of Phyllis Wheatley, which everyone knew would be quite a challenge. Yeah, there's a lot of difficulty when writing about early African Americans, as there's often very little documentation. What difficulties did you encounter when writing about Wheatley? Well, Wheatley uh, is especially challenging because... (laughs) She's not only African-American, not only was she a slave, but she was a woman. And writing about slaves actually can be easier than writing about free people who are black, because when people are slaves, they're unfortunately, they're defined as property, and other people who own them tend to keep records of them. For example, in wills, if someone, uh, when someone dies, they leave their property to their heirs, and that's one way we can trace uh, the locations of people of African descent if they're slaves. But when they become freed, there's less interest by others in their existence. And so unless they get involved in, say, court matters, uh, or uh, get arrested, run into the law in some way, it's really hard to track them down. And with women, it's whether they're uh, black or white, it's very difficult in earlier periods because as soon as a woman marries, 
her legal identity is subsumed by that of her husband. So you have to be able to track her husband to be able to track her, usually. What sources were most helpful to you? Well, in Wheatley's case, uh, church records were very useful for her records. Fortunately, we do have some correspondence by her. We have some uh, extraordinary correspondence, extraordinary in the sense that, as far as I know, it's the only case in which we have the records of a slave ship that carried an identifiable individual person from Africa to America. And in Phyllis's case, the slave ship was named Phyllis, and she was named after the ship. Now, once she uh, got married to John Peters, fortunately, he had lots of legal problems, and he was suing a lot of people, and a lot of people were suing him, so we can trace him. He'd always been one of the great mysteries about her life because no one knew what happened to him. And I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to find out, to trace him down until he died. Were there any surprises along the way as you were writing about her? Anything you didn't expect to happen? I didn't expect to be able to solve the John Peters mystery. I didn't expect to find that she was as forceful and assertive as uh, I've convinced myself and I'm trying to convince others that she was. I think, I think it is very convincing. I walked away from the book with that impression that I was impressed by her boldness. Definitely. Now, her reputation had always been that, that she was pretty prim and proper and fairly passive, that things happened to her rather than that she was the agent of of the events in her life. So how did she come to be in America? Uh, not by her own uh, will. She was kidnapped in Africa in 1761 and brought to America. She arrived in July of 1761 in Boston. She was about seven years old. We know that because her front teeth were missing. So she was a little girl. And we do have the records, as I say, from the uh, the owner of the slave ship to the captain of the slave ship, telling him where to go in Africa. Uh, people have often said that Phyllis came from the area of Senegal or Gambia in West Africa. In fact, Senegal issued a stamp commemorating her in 1971. But the odds are very low that she came from either of those areas. If you look at the uh, evidence from those letters from the slave owner to the captain, because the slave owner tells the captain go first to Senegal, spend a few days only there, do not buy girls or women, buy men and young boys, and if you can't get them, keep going down the coast. And no um, savvy captain would buy as one of his first purchases a seven-year-old girl because it wouldn't be much of a market for a seven-year-old girl. And so she was probably purchased much further down the coast. And we know that the captain spent four months off the coast. So she was probably came from some area closer to what's present-day Guinea. 
And how did she come to be bought by the Wheatley family? She was bought uh, within days of arrival in Boston, and we're told that uh, she was bought as a gift for Susanna Wheatley. I have a theory as to why they might have wanted her, because she was what was what would have been called in those days a refuse slave. In other words, uh, someone with very low market value, because a seven-year-old girl didn't do much work. But interestingly, they the Wheatleys had two two children at the time, ten-year-old twins, uh, Nathaniel and Mary. But they had had three other children who had died young, and one of them, Sarah is the only one who has a very lengthy um, gravestone epitaph, and it records the uh, that she was seven years old, uh, I think nine months and 11 days, so down to the day how old she was, a beloved daughter. And so she was the same age as Phyllis, and she had been born in 1752. Phyllis was born around 1753, so I think that she was Phyllis was bought as a kind of substitute for the lost daughter, and certainly Phyllis's letters and other contemporaries of Phyllis all say that she was raised as if she was a member of the family, treated as a child, especially by Susanna. And I think that theory is kind of validated in the type of education she was given as well, right? Oh yeah, her education was amazing. Uh, I tried to compare it to a couple of her contemporaries, one a white girl, Anna Green Winslow, and one a slave girl, Chloe Spear. And Anna Green Winslow, she kept a diary, and so she recorded all the books that she was reading. And her books were all what we would call children's versions of uh, classics, such as Gulliver's Travels. And at that time, at the same time, Phyllis was reading uh, Homer's works in Pope's, Alexander Pope's translation. She was reading adult literature at the same age as uh, the white girl who was going formally to school. And the slave girl, Chloe Spear, had to sneak an education because her master was very opposed to her having an education. And she never learned to be completely literate, so... The account of her life is told to us through the uh, pen of a white author. This is also a time when literacy rates were extremely low across the country, not just among slaves or among women, but also men didn't have a very high literacy rate as well, right? In New England, uh, the literacy rate was actually fairly high, at least the rate for the ability to read because of the Protestant emphasis on the ability to read the Bible. And Susanna Wheatley was uh, very pious, and so she wanted her slaves to be able to read. Writing was a, a, a different issue. We, we, tend to, we tend to think that if someone's literate, they can both read and write. But reading was a fairly safe thing to teach slaves writing was a dangerous thing to teach slaves because then they could communicate at great distances 
as Wheatley obviously did. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. In Genius and Bondage, one of the things that I thought was fascinating was how you explore Wheatley's Christianity as a subtle rebellion against enslavement. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. Uh, Wheatley wasn't alone in that. In uh, a number of the early black writers, you uh, basically appropriate Christianity to say, to measure the hypocrisy of whites who profess to be Christians against true Christianity. Uh, Christianity itself doesn't um, prohibit slavery. There is Christianity mentioned, uh, there is slavery mentioned in the New Testament even, and certainly in the Old Testament. But what the, what people like Phyllis Wheatley do is they tend to hold the whites up to measure them against the spirit of Christianity and not simply the letter of Christianity. So they find them wanting in their professions of Christianity uh, when compared to their practices against other people, especially in, in their slaves. We so she staked up, I'm sorry, no, she staked up the moral high ground, if you will. Mm-hmm. And she also employed evangelical Christianity as a means of getting into print as well, right? By writing mm-hmm. about religious figures who passed away. And... Right. And uh, from her earliest published work, which is 1767, she is writing about um, God's providence, God's oversight of humans, and the work that brought her international fame is is the one that you, um, I think I'm referring to, her poem on the death of the great Methodist evangelist, uh, George Whitfield, who died in 1770 on his 7th preaching tour of America. And she she used that opportunity. She was still a slave. She wrote a poem to him and sent a copy of it to his patron, the Countess of Huntington, in uh, England. And in her letter, she, she acknowledges that she's being pretty, um, what we would call cheeky in doing so. Can you talk a bit about what is now believed to have been her first poem, the one that was recently found in the diary of Jeremy Belknap? Yeah. We'd always thought that, uh, well, we knew that she had first published a poem in 1767. And I am something of a fanatic. Uh, I want to, uh, there aren't that many specific dates that we know about of in her life. So I decided I wanted to know what the weather was on each of those days. And in the 18th century, there, of course, wasn't uh, meteorological, official meteorological records. But what people did was to keep uh, records of weather in their diaries. And the easiest way to keep records of weather in a diary was to use an almanac, a published almanac as a diary. And so I decided I'd look at Jeremy Belknap's uh, almanac because, in part because he was one of the founders of the Massachusetts Historical Society. I was there on a fellowship from them doing research for this book. And so I was simply innocently trying to find out what was what the weather was like on the day that she left England, uh, left. Boston in 1773 and on the 
the day that she returned. And at the end of the volume, uh, Belknap has written in what he labels as Phyllis's first effort. And he dates it 1765, and he says that she wrote it when she was uh, aged 11. And it's a little elegy on the death of a couple of people. Uh, elegies on the deaths of people were uh, her most common early poems. And I was able to identify the people that she was talking about and find out when they died so I could date the poem pretty exactly. Uh, it's not a great poem, as you might imagine, for an 11-year-old. But when you compare it to the published poem in 1767, it's hard to believe that the same person could have made so much progress, but obviously she did. Um, on being brought from Africa to America is Wheatley's probably her most notorious poem. I know that's the one we always studied in classes in college. Can you discuss that a bit? Yeah, that certainly is her most notorious poem, uh, and it's caused her the most problems. <laughs> A lot of people, um, it, it's the only poem that a lot of people have read by her. And a lot of people forget that, or don't know, that she wrote that when she was about 14. And it is a kind of conventional poem uh, that uh, if you are a true believer, whatever your faith is, whether you're a uh, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim, you, if you believe in a benevolent God, you believe that everything that happens in this world is ultimately for the good. It may not be for the good in this world, but it's for the good in the next world. And Phyllis, all the evidence we have is that Phyllis was a, a pious believer. And so even slavery in this world uh, would only be a uh, an evil from a temporal perspective, but from the eternal perspective, it must somehow fit into a providential plan. And so her, her poem seems to accept um, the slavery that has introduced her to Christianity. Without having been enslaved, she wouldn't have been introduced to the truth of Christianity. So the slavery is a kind of way station to a good end. But there is a way to read that poem subversively. Uh, for example, in one line, she says, Remember Christians, Negroes, <clears throat> black as sin, uh, that the, it depends on where you put the comma. <laughs> that whether she's saying, Remember to Christians, or whether she's saying, Remember, and then there's a kind of... Um, Implicit, remember that, Christians, Negroes, so that Christians and the Negroes are in the same situation, that they're both black with sin. So how did she go about getting the poems published? She probably got the poems, well, her first poems were probably published through the uh, intercession and connections of uh, Susanna Wheatley, her, her owner. Because she was publishing while she was still a teenager. Even her book that she published in 1773, all those poems were written uh, by the time she was 18 or 19. And she tried to get, by 1772, she had 
written and or published enough poems that she and Susanna tried to get a volume published in Boston by subscription, which meant that they tried to line up enough people who would promise to buy the book, put up some money in in advance to uh, pay for the publication of the book. But they weren't able to get enough in Boston, uh, in part because people doubted whether Phyllis could have written the poems. And so they turned to the Countess of Huntington, who, uh, to whom Phyllis had addressed that elegy on George Whitfield that I mentioned before. And the Countess of Huntington sent several of her missionaries over to in, actually interview Phyllis, one of them had her write a poem in his presence on a subject that he gave her. Wrote he wrote back to the countess saying she's the real deal. Um, and so the countess said, "Okay, uh, have her come over to England. I'd like to have a frontispiece made for the book, and I will, you know, support the publication of the book." And so Phyllis went over in 1773, in part to uh, in kind of a publicity as part of a publicity campaign and uh, the book got published in England. And we know what she looks like because of that frontispiece, right? Right. That's the only picture we have of her. And it's a radical one because there was a picture of an 18th century black woman capable of writing poetry. That mm-hmm. was interesting. Um, so when she went to London, this was during a time when slavery was illegal in Britain, right? Well, she went to London at a really interesting time. Uh, this is one of the uh, major points, I think, of, of my biography, is that she went to London in the summer of 1773. She arrived almost a year to the day after the most consequential judicial decision in uh, the history of British slavery, of English slavery. And that was the Mansfield decision in June of 1772, in which the Lord Chief Justice ruled that no slave brought from the colonies could legally be forced back as a slave to the colonies from England. And this ruling had been publicized in Boston newspapers repeatedly, including newspapers that had published Phyllis's poems before she left uh, Boston. And a number of these accounts of the ruling warned slave owners not to bring their slaves to England because they wouldn't be able to control them and they couldn't bring them back unless uh, they couldn't legally force them to come back. And Phyllis was accompanied by Nathaniel Wheatley, uh, the son of her owners, uh, to he accompanied her to uh, London because he had business dealings there and business connections. And she was there for only six weeks. She left before her book was actually published, but she was there while there, it was advertised in the magazines and newspapers. And after she returned... Uh, less than a month after she returned, she wrote a letter to David Wooster in New Haven, Connecticut, telling him that she had been freed at the desire of her friends in England. 
And while she was in in England, uh, she she wrote, uh, she described to Wooster in this letter uh, what she saw in England, who she met in England, and what has happened in the few weeks since she's returned. And she tells him about uh, she'd been a uh, something of a celebrity in England, as you might imagine. I mean, here's here was the most celebrated and best known enslaved person of African descent in the British Empire. And she did all of the things that tourists still do when they go to London. Uh, she went to the Tower of London. She went to the British Museum. Uh, she went to Whitehall. And she tells him of the people that she met, one of whom was Benjamin Franklin. And people get pretty excited about the fact that she met Benjamin Franklin and think, well, maybe he played some role in are getting freed, but they forget that at the time, Franklin had a slave with him in London, so he wasn't uh, pushing for freedom for slaves. That came much later in his life. But what people don't notice is that uh, the, the person who she says was her tour guide to the Tower of London was Granville Sharp. And Granville Sharp was the person who had brought the case uh, before Mansfield the previous year, and Granville Sharp had spent the previous seven years uh, bringing cases to try to get a ruling outlawing slavery in England. And so here was Granville Sharp, with the most renowned slave in the British Empire, uh, and the chances that her opportunity to emancipate herself while in England not coming up seemed to me extremely small, especially while they're standing and uh, looking at the Tower of London, which had a zoo at that time. And they saw a caged lion, she tells us. And she doesn't mention, but we know this from, or I know this from, uh, and now everybody will know it, from uh, guidebooks of the time that one of the uh, caged wolves was named Phyllis. And so I just can't imagine them saying that they're not saying, oh, by the way, you can free yourself. <laughs> and uh, so I think that Granville Sharp and, and the others are these friends who desired her freedom. And as soon as she mentions it, all of uh, the way she talks in the, the first half of this letter is about things that happened to her. She uses what we call the passive voice. Uh, she receives the action of others. And as soon as she mentions gaining freedom, she starts using the past, uh, the active voice. I did this. I did that. And she tells Wooster that one of the things she did was to have a uh, an instrument, a, a paper, legal document drawn up that guarantees that all of the property that she owns or will own, and she says to protect them from her own a former owner and his heirs that all of that property is hers and is only can be uh, given by her to her heirs. And she, and she tells Wooster that she not only has a copy in Boston, but she sent a copy to one of the people that she met in England, as, as I call it, as a kind of safe deposit box. And then she says to Wooster, uh, don't let anybody sell copies of my, or a pirate reprint copies of my book without my authorization. 
and I have signed all of the copies that are authentic. So she demonstrates that she's a savvy businesswoman, that she's immediately taking control over her life and her future to the extent that she can. She knows what she's doing. It's very different from the, the kind of uh, the conventional image of this, the passive Phyllis Wheatley who says, oh, thank you for doing this to me. So what happens when she returns to America? She, she comes back. Uh, her mistress, Susanna, is ill. Susanna dies in 1774. Phyllis is apparently still living with the Wheatley family. She's uh, Her books get distributed in America in early 1774. So she's writing to a number of people about uh, selling her books. Uh, she's at the high point of her a literary career. She's well-known. People like Voltaire. She comes to the attention of people like Voltaire, Ignatius Sancho, who was a, an African-British writer who never met Phyllis Wheatley, was sent a copy of her book, her book rather, and he described her in a letter to a friend or to the person who had sent him the copy as a genius in bondage, which is the subtitle of my biography of her. Uh, Jupiter Hammond, who was an enslaved African in New York, wrote a poem addressed to her. Again, he didn't know her. This, both of those events, uh, Sancho and, and Hammond both wrote about her in 1778. So she was, everything seemed to be going very well for her. And in March of 1778, John Wheatley died, and suddenly uh, she seems to have been on her own, and she tells, uh, she announced her engagement to John Peters on April 1st, 1778, which everyone, including me, had mistakenly thought was the day that she and John Peters married. I had always felt a little uncomfortable with saying that, even though I said it in print, uh, because she wrote letters dated May and July of 1778 after the uh, announcement of the engagement. To She wrote letters to people in which she uh, refers to herself as Phyllis Wheatley and says to send, respond to her, Phyllis Wheatley, care of John Peters. And so I kept digging and discovered that they actually married on Thanksgiving Day, 1778. So the prim and proper Phyllis Wheatley was living, as we would say, in sin with uh, John Peters from March to uh, November of 1778. Now, at least they were living in the same house together. Protect her virtue. He was a bit of a sketchy figure, right? Uh, he was indeed. <laughs> uh, the records we have of her uh, marriage to him, most people depended upon the account by Margareta Matilda O'Dell, who published a memoir, a, a short biography of Phyllis Wheatley in 1834, the preface to a collection of her poems. 
And Odell's depiction of uh, John Peters makes him sound like a, a Dickensian villain, a kind of snidely whiplash, uh, um, really bad guy. She says that uh, he was a an imposter, a confidence man. Uh, he posed as a physician, as a as a lawyer. Uh, he abandoned her at the end. She died in uh, December of 1784. She says, with the last of their three children dying with her, and he just took off. And she says he went south, which. All of which is very depressing to a biographer, Phyllis Wheatley, because saying that he went south doesn't give you a lot to work with, since there's a lot south of Boston. (laughs) And uh, I decided I'd just ignore that, because I couldn't do anything with it. And rather than what the few people who had tried to write anything about Phyllis Wheatley's life and John Peter's, uh, they had just given up because you know, went south. He couldn't. You know, that's that's too wide open. But I just kept digging away at him and ended up finding a good deal about him. And uh, enough that my wife at one point asked me, "Are you writing a biography of Phyllis Wheatley or John Peters? You know, why keep going?" And I said, "Well, I have to kill him off to make it you know, complete." And it turns out that. The claim that he uh, abandoned her is hmm, probably pretty unfair to him. They married, as I said, in, in late 1778. He was conducting business in western Massachusetts in 1779. He had a white business partner and 1780, I, I spent a lot of time with tax records, uh, legal records, court records, jail records, that, uh, church records, trying to track uh, Phyllis and, and John down. And uh, fortunately, in 18th century uh, America, the way you collected debts was to sue people. That was uh, the most common way to try to get debts paid. And uh, he was suing his business partner. Uh, he won that lawsuit. So we have records of uh, his travel expenses, John Peter's travel expenses. And, but unfortunately for him, he was also being sued by the, the person who was probably their wholesaler, a woman in Boston. And he lost that suit and the uh, cost of that suit was worth more than his tax appraisal more combined with what he had won in his suit and and not surprisingly at that point he and Phyllis disappear from the records for three years and I think what happened is he availed himself of one of the three opportunities that uh, people charged with debt had one was to hide in your house and hope your creditor gave up. One was to go to jail and uh, hope that your creditor gave up, uh, assuming that you wouldn't be able to make any money while you're in jail. And so typically debtors would be in and out of jail, in and out of jail, but creditors would let them 
out uh, to see if they can make enough money. <clears throat> if not, then they would charge them again. Or you ran away and um, tried to disappear. And so I think that's what happened to him because for three years there's no record. Then suddenly after the war ends, in 1784, he's back in Boston. He applies successfully for a license to sell liquor. And he's almost immediately in the next tax record identified as in jail for debt. And that's in September of 1784. As I said, she dies in December. He was in jail again or still in April of 1785. So... The odds are great that he was in jail for debt when she died, not that he fled from her. Uh, so Odell's being pretty unfair to him. Uh, Odell has an agenda, I should say. She, she, her, part of her argument is that Phyllis was happier as a slave because she had security than she was as a free woman and when she was insecure and had to depend upon a man. But then to try to track John Peters um, afterwards, fortunately he was in and out of jail. Fortunately he was suing other people and being sued by them. He uh, did not stabilize economically until 1790. But we need to keep in mind that all of uh, America, and especially New England, is a, it went into a Great Depression after the American Revolution. And by 17, uh, early 1790s, he is described in the sense, in the, uh, tax records as a physician, lawyer, gentleman, Pintlesmith, which is my favorite. Uh, a Pintlesmith is someone who makes the pin that a rudder turns on or that a door hinge turns on. Uh, it was extremely common in the 18th century for people to have simultaneously multiple occupations because you could never be sure that one would pan out. The idea that, um, okay, uh, you know, Odell's charge that he was posing as a physician and a lawyer would seem to be true, but again, we need to keep in mind the context. Lawyers, uh, the legal profession and the medical profession were not professionalized uh, in the 18th century the way they were in the 19th century when Odell was writing. There were no uh, law schools in America before the American Revolution, before uh, the 19th century. There were only three medical schools. And none of those were open to uh, people of African descent, of course. The people who practiced medicine were normally ministers. And besides, in the 18th century, the last thing you wanted to do if you hoped to survive would be to go to a doctor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so people, there are lots of the kind of self-help medical books that people bought. And the same thing with uh, legal books. Uh, the... The uh, way one became a lawyer in the 18th century was the same way one can become a lawyer in uh, Virginia, where you can read law with someone who is a lawyer. You don't need to go to law school. 
And so he was again successful in, in, uh, by 1790. By 1793, uh, he, he had a reputation for being litigious, for suing other people. Uh, and in 1793, he was indicted for barratry, which is simply a fancy legal term for being litigious. <laughs> he was uh, convicted, and uh, they dropped the charges in the, the next year. And amazingly, he never sued anybody after that. So apparently he got the message. Um, I kept tracking him to... Let's see what, you know, if I could find out what happened to him. Uh, in the textbook for 1799 in Boston, we're told that he's a doctor and a pintle mender who's gone to Cambridge, moved to Cambridge. And then in, in the textbook for 1800, he's referred to as John Peters, black man, dead. And I thought, okay, I could stop there. He's now supposedly dead, but I'm a suspicious type. So I thought, why would he have gone back to Boston, you know, in the following year? So I kept looking and discovered a notice in a March 1801 Boston newspaper of the death at Charlestown, which is uh, a northern suburb of Boston now. Dr. John Peters, age 55, doesn't say that he was black, doesn't say that he was a pintle mender, but I thought, okay, let's see if it's my John Peters. And looking in court records in the Massachusetts archives, in June of 1801, there is the administration, which means uh, when someone dies without a will, uh, there's a court proceeding, an administration to determine how much that person was worth and what creditors would be paid off. So there's an administration of, quotes John Peters, late of Charlestown, Negro and physician, deceased intestate. So I knew it was my guy. Um, and part of that record lists all of his possessions, so we know what he owned at the end, and that included a sleigh and uh, uh, various dishes and two mahogany tables and uh, 13 books and a Bible, and we know what he was worth, and he died as he had lived, owing more than he possessed, uh, but again, that was very common in the 18th century. So I managed to kill him off. <laughs> I think you have another book right there, The Litigious Career of John Peters. That's right. fascinating. <laughs> um, to get back to Phyllis, what do you see as her literary legacy? Well, she's widely was at the time even recognized as a pioneer of uh, what we now call African-American literature. Uh, she was one of the, certainly one of the major poets in the 18th century in America. She, and, and we need to keep in mind that all but the last uh, four of her poems were written before she was 20 years old. 
So if you try to think of how many poets would we be reading if we were reading only what they had written before they were 20 years old, it's a very short list. Uh, often it begins and ends with John Keats. But uh, So she was quite phenomenal in that. She's been recognized as the, the mother of African-American literature. Uh, she is a major figure in American literature of, of the 18th century. And a number of the rhetorical uh, maneuvers that she made in, in which she comments on slavery. It's very interesting to look at her works before she was uh, freed and after she was freed to see how she deals with the subject of slavery, for example, how indirectly and subtly she deals with it before she's freed and how much more directly she does after she's freed, which I guess it shouldn't be surprising, but a lot of people forget to read her in a historical context and to ask, well, when did she write that poem and what was her own condition at the time? Thank you so much for talking with us today about Phyllis Wheatley, Biography of a Genius in Bondage. I know it's a horrible question to ask an author whose book only just came out, but do you have any idea who you'll be writing about next? Uh, you sound like my publisher. Uh, <laughs> well, I've been thinking, I'm, I'm working on a, a few different things, smaller things. Uh, as far as a larger um, subject or a biography, uh, I never thought of myself as a biographer, uh, but now that I've written two of them, I guess I am a biographer. Um, there's a person that I'm I'd be interested in trying to write a biography. Again, he'd be a challenge, and his name is Philip Kwaku, who Phyllis writes about, as she knew about. Uh, do you want me to say something about who he was? Yeah, sure. He was um, an African born in what's now Ghana, and he was sent to England as uh, to be trained as a missionary and ordained as a missionary, which he was, and sent back to Africa, to his homeland, in 1765. He was there for until his death, 51 years later, to be a missionary. And one of his uh, duties was to write letters back to London, accounting for his success, or in his case, lack thereof, as a Christian missionary amongst his fellow Native Africans. So we have this correspondence that had never been uh, published, had been left in manuscript, until uh, I and Ty M. Reese, a historian at the University of North, Ca North Dakota, um, published an edition of his writings in uh, 2010. And He's a fascinating guy because uh, he has these, he was, some of his correspondents were people in North America, ministers in North America who wanted to know about the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade from the, from the Africans end. We have, ex, you know, as you might imagine, extremely few 18th century African voices in Africa. And uh, what I'm, trying to do is find his will, and if I could find his will, uh, that might be the trigger that gets me to decide, okay, I do have, you know, 
I now have all I need to know about him. At the moment, uh, Ty, Tyrese and I, I think it's pretty safe to say, are the people who know more about him than anybody else because we've spent so much time with him. But he writes about uh, uh, cannibalism in, in Africa, uh, about religious practices in Africa, about the interactions uh, between Europeans and Africans and between different groups of Africans. Because, uh, as I say, he's writing for uh, 50 years from Africa. So that will be one project. Not the only one, I guess. I've also thought about uh, each of these. Um, the Phyllis Wheatley was supposed to be a chapter <laughs> in, a, in a, a kind of larger look at voices of early black voices in the transatlantic world, the English-speaking transatlantic world. And so far, um, one chapter became a biography of Equiano, one chapter has become a biography of Phyllis Wheatley, uh, one footnote became an edition of Philip Kwaku, because he's mentioned by both Equiano and Phyllis Wheatley, and I didn't want to just rely on other people's accounts of them, so I decided I need to know something about him directly, and it just grew. So, but I'm open to other suggestions. Well, no, I'll definitely look forward to whatever you do next. That's, I think you're doing really important work here. It's fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with biographer Vincent Coretta about his latest book, Phyllis Wheatley, Biography of a Genius in Bondage, which is now out in hardback. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books in Biography. Thanks for listening.